welcome to SLP Full Disclosure, the podcast for SLPs by SLPs, where we deep dive into a variety of topics to empower, educate, and entertain. Join us each episode to hear from expert guests and topics that matter most. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and let's jump into this episode. Hello, and welcome to SLP Full Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Jennifer Martin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alyssa Hunter. Hi, everybody. So usually we are lucky enough to have one amazing guest, but today we have two amazing guests, and I'm really excited for you all to get to know them. We have Amber Ladd and Amy Prince, and let me tell you a little bit about them before we get started. Amy and Amber are the co-founders of The Talk Team, a speech therapy practice and Talk ABA Incorporated located in Fresno, California. They are both graduates of CSU Fresno and are both dually certified as board certified behavior analysts as well as speech and language pathologists. Amy is also certified as an educational advocate. Amy and Amber founded the Talk team in 2006 and since that time they have worked diligently to provide high quality specialized services to children with a variety of speech and language needs. Their mission is creation of communication for all children regardless of diagnosis or ability level. They provide training for speech pathologists, BCBAs, OTs, and support personnel across the country. So welcome Amber and Amy. Thank you. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Wow, what an introduction. I mean, I'm not really sure if there's something you haven't done. And so we're going to have a lot to, a lot of ground to cover today in, in this podcast episode. Thanks so much for being here. Um, okay, so I know Absolutely. that you and Jennifer have been chatting away. Um, and I want to know a lot more about your background. How did you both become what it sounds like superheroes in the speech and behavior (laughs) world? So, okay, let's start with your background and then tell me a little bit about how you two met and how the talk team came to be. Um, well, I honestly think for us, it, the background is how we met. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were both working in private practice, and I, I think I was pregnant when I met Amber, and I had the um, opportunity to be her C, her clinical fellowship supervisor. And so I acted as her CF supervisor in kind of a part-time capacity, and then she ended up coming on and working at the private practice. And we had life changes and things that led us to say, okay, we don't want to do this anymore. We're going we're gonna to go work in the schools and have our summers off, and that's what we want to do. Um, and we didn't really corroborate, corroborate excuse me, about that choice, but we made the choice about two weeks apart. And I feel, you know, empathy for the boss back then, because that was probably not easy, but we did both leave within about two weeks of each other. And when we left, we had clients who said, we want to go with you. We each had two clients. So we thought, okay, we can handle that. We'll do two clients after school. It'll be fine, but we better start a business. And, you know, we were out for appetizers and cocktails and we decided we'd name our business and start it out from there. So originally, TALK came from um, the acronym for Teaching Articulation and Language to Kids, which we were super proud of. And we thought this was really (laughs) fancy that we did this. So we started our business, and we each saw these two clients in their homes. And we worked at their kitchen tables on their bedroom floors and just kept working in the schools. Mm -hmm. And 
word of mouth just happened and we kept just getting more clients. And so this happened for a while until we didn't have enough afternoons or driving time to actually make this functional. So we decided that we would rent space from a church and we just used their space one day a week and we tithed 10% of what we made back to the church to pay for the space. And we stayed there and eventually got to the point that we both had a full day of clients there. And so we were lessening our time in the school districts during this period and then got to the point that we couldn't carry all of our materials in and out of the building anymore. And we thought, okay, this is now no longer functional. So we rented a one room little office and we put a really fancy gymnastics mat down the middle to separate the space. And we would both work on each side of this mat with the kids. And that worked really well until we really started attracting behavior clients. Um, and at this point, neither one of us were certified as BCBAs. And so it just kind of was our bread and butter and what mm -hmm. we really enjoyed. And at one point we had a client who she really struggled every time the weather changed. And if she had to go from shorts to pants or pants to shorts, it was a week of really, really hard times. And she screamed so loud that um, someone next to us called the police. And our landlord asked us very politely if we could go change the world somewhere else, not around other renters that he had in his building. Um, and somewhere in that time, I was working in the schools, and I have a way back history. Like, I worked my way through graduate school as a Lovos tutor, which gives away my age because I was of the original when you could get 40 hours a week of in-home intervention with a team of what was not then BTs, but would now be considered behavior tutors. Um, and so I was a behavior tutor in home with a little boy who started 40 hours a week at 18 months old. And I, I was always attracted to working with children with autism, but then doing that with him um, literally changed my life. Um, he's, he's now in his 20s. And I had the amazing opportunity to go to his 21st birthday. His parents got a taco truck and invited all of his former tutors. And so a lot of my colleagues now, they've gone into psychology, they've gone into ABA, they've gone into speech. We had girls flying in from Colorado to just be there to celebrate him because he was that impactful. And our experience was so good. And so I kept coming back to the field of autism. And then in 2008, I ended up in a program in a local school district where one of the other people working in it was a BCBA, and he suggested, why haven't you done it? And I said, well, I don't want to go back to school. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, not interested in this business. Um, but our local university happened to be offering something global ed. I could go five hours, two nights a week. And so in 2009, I got my BCBA. And then during that time, I was in a school district working with just kind of your run-of-the-mill articulation and language clients. And I had also been very attracted to autism. That's actually how we had met, because someone said, if you want to go into autism, you need to find Amy Prince. And so I found her and got myself a job at the clinic she was working at. Um, but when I left and went into the schools, it was a very small district, and after probably a little less than a year, I was bored to tears. And I was like, I just, this is not my cup of tea. I can't do this. And so then I got a job in an autism preschool. And then myself, my teacher and psychologist, we all went back to get our BCBAs through the same program one year after Amy had. Yep. 
So there's there's how we ended up where we are today. <laughs> and then basically the practice just snowballed from mm -hmm. the period of time that, you know, we both did it part-time and now we have 15 full-time speech therapists and then we started the ABA Center about a year ago. I mean, it sounds like this just kind of happened overnight. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Not it at did, all. For 16 years. <laughs> Many a really overnights. long night. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was a long night. Um, that is incredible. I mean, that just goes to show that, you know, you took this idea and built upon it and made it to what it is now and really made it to follow what you love and wanted to do. Um, I think that's incredible. And, and one of the things that, you know, I know that you all work with such a specialized group of, you know, kids and, you know, you have so many therapists that also do the same. And when you have so many different diagnoses, and again, you're combining you know, the behavior, the communication, one of the things that I know that, you know, we really want to touch on with you and that I know that our listeners and ourselves are really interested in is working on just creating a strong treatment plan and goal writing for those, for those times, uh, because it is tricky and it's, it's so important. And I don't think, you know, people put enough emphasis onto that. And, and you know, I know that I've been on the receiving end of getting a goal and I'm like, really, this is not appropriate. And I'm sure I've written goals that somebody said, really, this is not appropriate. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk with you both about when you're starting to write goals for a child, um, what do you look at? What do you take into account? And and I think one of the big things I really want to touch on too is that I think so many times you can tell that the goal was taken right from you know the self protocol, and you're like ah, that's, like how does that translate, or what does that mean, or why are we even working on that? So how do you translate those assessment scores to create really meaningful goals that are going to really you know create some impact for that child's education? Um, it's funny, in, in ABA, there's a term that they use over and over again, and it's the term socially significant, that the, the um, goal or the aim of an ABA program is to create socially significant change for a child. And I think that that term for both Amber and I is something that like is the top level for us. Mm -hmm. And every time we do an assessment or every time we review a child's skills and we're trying to look at the next goal, we're looking at what can we do to cause socially significant change. And socially significant means that somebody besides us is going to notice it and that they're going to go out into another environment and be able to use whatever skill we're teaching and really have them receive what we would consider reinforcement or attention for use of that skill. Um, and so we're always looking for things that are functional and then things that will kind of span across areas. Um, we struggle a lot with just goals that are very so specialized that they could only use them in one room of one class of one place in the school. It's like, well, okay, that's awesome. But what are we actually teaching that's going to transcend the environments that this person has to function in? And I think that when you say, when we look at the assessment, we go through the assessment process to see where those deficits are. But then we take that information and say, okay, yes, you have this deficit, but how is this impacting your life? Whether, you know, in school, academically, or with your family, or how you're communicating in your community, 
where do those deficits actually show up outside of a test that we've given at our table? And then I think, Jennifer, you hit on it when you said that, why? Why am I working on this? That's literally what we come back to every single time is, okay, we have identified an area of need, but why are we going to focus on it? And how are we going to translate that into a socially significant skill that will make a difference in a child's life? Well, and I think that's so important because I know there was a trend for a long time and I do still see it some places where the goal is written for, you know, the child during group on the carpet in the classroom will do this. And it's like, but they're on the carpet in the classroom. I, I understand what they're trying to do, but it does really make it so specific that it is hard to carry it over into multiple settings. And that's really is the goal is it's, you know, you want to make a lasting change across all settings. So I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also really, I love that term socially significant. I actually have never heard that before. And thinking about this idea of, is what we're working on something that someone else is going to notice? I think about all of the kids uh, that I've received goals with synonyms and antonyms goals mm-hmm. and all of those things. And of course, there are aspects that are building blocks to other skills, right? But um, that functional piece, I think, is something that is really hard a lot of times to convey in your goals. And especially when you're working in a school setting, which I know you both have a long history with, and you have to keep it educationally relevant, which brings Mm -hmm. me to my next question, which is how do you write goals for kids in a school setting versus the clinic with still keeping in mind this, why are we doing this? Are other people going to notice? Can they, you know, generalize these skills? Is it socially significant? Like, how can we do that better in the schools? (laughs) You know, I mean, you're you're correct. We do both have a long history in the schools. And I think school goal writing is actually more our passion Mm -hmm. than clinical goal writing. Because it's, there's a long history in the schools of goals being written so educationally relevant that they don't necessarily transcend into other areas. Um, And so I think for both Amber and I, the schools, that kind of goal writing is a bigger passion for us. We are in California, as you mentioned earlier, and so all of our goals, and I'm sure in other states, also have to be written to Common Core State Standards. Um, Or if we're working with preschoolers, there is something called the California Preschool Learning Foundations. So, yeah, we believe in using those foundational things as kind of a guide, but it's just a scaffold. It's not the way we're going to write the goal. We're going to use an element of whatever the state standard is to create something. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really important to us to live by this idea of thinking outside the box and being creative. So I think we definitely look at things through both lenses Mm -hmm. and we will look at, okay, how do we navigate this to meet Common Core State Standards And how do we make sure that this is functional and relevant and meld those things together? And I think that one of the things that we hold very highly is this idea of when you do write a goal, no matter how you're looking at it, what is it going to look like? And I think that very often when we come out of graduate school and are very early on in our careers that we just know, here's how you write a goal. Here's how I look at the next step and I will write it here. But when a child actually comes and elicits a, you know, a behavior, I have no idea if that actually met the goal or not, because I've never thought about how it looks in life. I've just thought about how it's written. 
you'll often see things like you, you mentioned synonyms and antonyms, which are totally appropriate for many of our language kids. But if you write a goal that like child will understand synonyms and antonyms, then there are so many questions left to that. And I totally wrote that goal, I promise, <laughs> when I graduated. But did I mean they could tell me? Did I mean they would show me? Did I mean that I was going to read their brain and know that they understood them even if they couldn't tell me? There are so many of those elements that, that are often missing. And so it's more, like Amber said, the why and the what that we want to see. Well, and I think you're so right. It's like, why do we want them to know synonyms and antonyms? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's the purpose? So um, I agree so much. And I know, you know, you all have known this for a long time, obviously, because, you know, you've combined this love of working with you know, behavior challenges and also with communication. And I feel like now it's finally really getting a lot more of the attention it deserves because so often, you know, we just keep trying to do the same thing over and over from a communication standpoint, but there's behaviors that are in the way that we can't get to that point unless we address this first. And I really think that's getting a lot more of much needed attention and, and, and focus. So I would love to hear from you all, you know, you know, how do you address, you know, combining the behavior challenges with us traditional speech and language goals? Like, and, and what would that look like? What would be an example of a goal that might, that you would write to address both of those areas? I think for us, in the combination, we always talk about what is the biggest interference right now for the child. So when we look at a kiddo, we want to look at what thing is interfering the most with their access to education. What thing is interfering the most with them participating in a less restrictive environment, be it a general ed classroom, be it an active circle time? What is that thing? And if that thing is a behavior then, and there's a there's a um, statement that communication is behavior and behavior is communication. Um, you'll hear people argue with it. I think that there are some elements that are very, very true. And if you've got a kiddo who is constantly destroying things, you have to stop and look, what's he trying to tell us when he's destroying things? Is the room too loud? Is the room too cold? Is there something that he needs to be able to tell us? And so in that element, if we're looking at a child that has a behavior that's so significant that it's interfering with their participation in an appropriate educational environment, we want to break it down and figure out the function of that behavior, Um, which is a very long podcast. But (laughs) you can figure out the function of that behavior. And once we figure out that function, we're going to target our communication goals there first. And no matter what, we always look at that access to what we're working on. So we have so many therapists out there who, you know, myself included back when I first started that would say, well, I can't work on the speech and language goals because he won't come to the table. He won't do these things. But if I take the time to address the behavior and make sure that we can function together and form a relationship, that's going to give me access to be able to work on those goals versus just saying, well, I can't because he won't do it. Sometimes we have to remove those barriers to be able to focus on the goals that we're trying to work on in the first place. And so really to address, like if you're looking at a a goal that addresses both the behavior and the language skill, we'll often say things in a goal like when presented with highly motivating materials, child will identify synonyms and antonyms. So I'm not going to pull out the boring cards that I found on Teachers Pay Teachers, no offense to any authors, but I'm going to go find Pokemon synonyms and antonyms or something along those lines because I know he's motivated by them. And so often we'll find that if we're presenting a child with very motivating materials, 
that they that they love Pokemon or Paw Patrol or any one of the you know hot topics for a child, that then they're more willing, or will often write into a goal that when presented with an appropriate reinforcer chart, so that the child knows once I do ten synonyms and antonyms, you are going to give me Skittles, therefore I will work. So we'll actually write those supports into a goal so that people understand that yes, he's meeting this goal right now, but he's meeting it with the provision of these other things that motivate him and that we recognize what he is motivated by. Well, I think sometimes we all fall, I know I've fallen into this trap, you know, before um, being awoken to looking more into behavior, but that it almost sometimes I think feels like to people, well, I'm taking a step back if I stop working on this, this speech goal and not realizing that you know, you're not going to get any further unless you do take a step back. And I know even, you know, with myself and then helping parents understand that has been a big piece of you're not working on speech. It's like, yes, but we can't until we do this. So I love the way you, you say that they can do it, but these, we all need something motivating and and they're kids. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's a really good point to add that that's, it's important to to add that piece in so people know they can, but these are the things we need to do to help them to achieve that. Well, and yeah. I think to piggyback on that, we're making it meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I think that so often we work on skills that are meaningful to us from an educational perspective, but if it's not meaningful to the child, then they don't have any reason to participate. And if we can just swap that and make it motivational and meaningful, then we're going to get that buy-in and be able to make good progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think unless you're only working with, you know, well, no, I take this back. I was going to say if you're only working with, you know, the R sound for a general education kid, you know, otherwise you need these supports. But even for those kids, if you can have them having fun, be motivated to come to speech, connect it with a positive experience, it might take that kid years to learn that R. And so Mm -hmm. even when you're working on the most basic skills and that kid does not have behaviors that interfere with their participation, it's still good to keep those motivators in mind or else that kid might only participate for, you know, that one year, but now they're in fourth grade and they still need help with their R. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really spans across the, the populations, no matter who you're working with, if it's a behavior focus or not. But okay. So when I'm thinking about goals and all of the challenges SSLPs run into with goals. Another one is really the benchmarks because I, I'm sure all of our listeners out there have experienced moving around to different schools or settings and finding that everyone does it so differently. And sometimes, you know, benchmarks can be written that each benchmark is a different skill set or a benchmark is the same skill set, but you have a different prompting hierarchy throughout the benchmarks. So I'd love to hear what your methods are and kind of how you go through your prompting hierarchies and supports with that. And is there anything that you stay away from to make sure your kid doesn't become prompt dependent, which I know is a huge thing in BCBA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that this is one of our soapboxes because one of the things that drives us crazy is when you get a goal in the schools and you do, it's difficult because you're working a year out 
And that's a really long ways to project what I'm going to be doing by then. Sometimes with a kid you've never met, mm-hmm. like you're writing goals in Jan or in August for a child who just enrolled and you're like, I don't know what he's capable of or how fast mm-hmm. he'll do it. Um, but one of the things that really gets us is that long-term goal that then is broken down that, you know, in a year from now, he can do it with 80% accuracy. But the first benchmark will be 30% accuracy and then 60% accuracy. And we very strongly feel that if we're teaching a skill and only expecting a child to be able to do it 30% of the time, that we're not really teaching a skill. We're teaching 70% of the time you can do it incorrectly and you might be practicing it wrong all the time. And so I think you hit on it when you said that prompting hierarchy is we really build those prompting levels into the benchmarks for the goals that we're working on so that we can make sure that we are meeting that goal, but also so it specifies how we're going to teach something. Because I think that there is this magical fairy dust that is supposed to come down when we say a year from now, you can do this skill, and we just start working at that terminal criteria and hoping at some point that that skill sticks. We talk a lot about scaffolding. Um, We work with graduate clinicians here locally, and we talk a lot about scaffolding. And that the whole point of an annual goal is that you, it's like a map. And you're saying, I want to get there in a year. Well, you wouldn't look at a map and then say, first, I'm going to learn to drive. No, that's not part of scaffolding to the goal. You're going to look at the turns. That's what we do. And so you're going to look at the steps you have to take to get to that goal. And we always... Amber mentioned or hit on it, but there's an amazing blog post from August of 2012 called The Tyranny of 80%. And um, the blog post talks about the idea that he's a special education teacher and he talks about why are we satisfied with our kids being correct 80% of the time. And he makes these analogies to like, would you be happy if your car started 80% of the time? Or if only 80% of the planes you rode on actually flew and the other 20% crashed? Um, Or our favorite is there's this goal out there that says Tommy will cross the street safely 80% of the time. And you have that moment where you're like, "Hmm, Tommy's parents don't want 80%. Um, And while obviously those are slightly facetious, if we think about it, we don't want our kids to do things wrong. We want them to do things correctly 100% of the time. And articulation has been good with this for years because we started in isolation. And we want them to be able to make it in isolation and then in consonant, vowel, and vowel consonant, and then in CVC, and then in, we, we scaffold our articulation most of the time pretty beautifully. But a lot of our other goals, we do the thing that Amber was talking about. And instead, we would argue that you would use a scaffolded prompting hierarchy, and it's different for whatever skill you're targeting. But if you want a child to make a two-word request, initially you might give them a full segmented model. I will model each word and they will copy it. And then you might give them a non-segmented model. And then you might give them a visual prompt or a tactile prompt. And then you might give them just a expectant look sort of prompt. Um, So you would scaffold that way, but you want them to make that request every time you give them an opportunity. Every trial, they should make that request. And so we have actually, we scare a lot of people when we say 100% accuracy. We don't really write 100% accuracy into goals, but that's what we're looking for. We're looking for them to perform the behavior all the time with the right amount of help. And I think that that takes the, the focus away from this child will do this to I will figure out how to teach mm-hmm. this child how to do this. And that puts the responsibility on me to be able to scaffold and change my prompting strategies to make sure that he is successful. 
And then I think the other piece of your question was that prompt dependency. Mm -hmm. And we will often write into our prompting levels of our goals all the different ways that we might prompt that because it is extremely important that we vary our prompts consistently. Even if we're at the level of giving a visual prompt, that could look differently every three trials mm -hmm. than I will always point to my mouth and show you how I want to make this sound. Because especially with the kids that we work with, they become so rote and routine based that that child will learn very quickly that, oh, I only say that if you point to your mouth and I can't do it if you don't provide me with this one very specific cue. And I think like like any any therapist, we try and eliminate full verbal models as quickly as we can. Verbal modeling in general, we try and minimize, although we do really emphasize there are a lot of natural verbal models in all of our um, in all of our environments. There are a lot of natural models that we believe. It's funny sometimes you'll see kids with one step direction and they're they are not allowed a verbal prompt and somebody asks them to give me five and then doesn't put their or a visual prompt. They're asked to give me five and somebody doesn't put their hand up. Like no, in real life, if we say give me five, we put our hand up. This is a natural prompt, so we try and include natural prompts, but then we try and get rid of that full verbal model or full hand over hand as quickly as we can. And we always emphasize that you're gonna work with some students or some children who will always be somewhere on a prompting hierarchy, maybe at a higher level. There's got to be some respect for that, that our terminal level for some students might be a visual prompt forever. But if we learn that, and we know they can be successful with visual prompts, the level of power that gives us as a therapist and a partner to that child is huge because we can provide them all the visual prompts and we can write that into every plan in their life and we know they'll be successful, so. I think it's also really important to hit on the fact that we think it's really important as a therapist to have an overall overarching goal for all the kids that we work with. And so for me personally, I think it's extremely important for my kids to be as independent as possible. And so having that kind of in the back of my mind all the time when I write goals, I'm constantly thinking about how can I make this more independent? So if I do have a child that's always going to need visual prompts for a skill I'm teaching, how can I make that visual prompt something he can be in control of? Mm -hmm. And how can it be something that's naturalistic that he could use then outside in the world when he's away from me that will give him what he needs, but he's not going to need me standing next to him holding his hand all the time to say, oh, here's your visual prompt. Yeah. Remember to use this. How can I make it functional and keep that independent level? Yes. You oh, me and Jennifer both are like, we have so much to say about this. I was just going to say, you know, just a few months ago when I was doing teletherapy, I was consulting with a family and they're like, the child never wants to use the visual prompt in the classroom. They just won't do it. And I'm like, well, what does the visual prompt look like? And they're like, well, it's a printout of a big turtle to remind him to talk slowly. And this kid's in like third grade or something. And I'm like, well, do you think he may be embarrassed bringing a whole sheet-sized paper of a turtle? Do you think maybe we can put like a little one inch by one inch picture of a turtle or of a dot or something else, you know, um, to make it so that it is functional? So there's so many things that you just said in that last answer that I feel like we could have five more podcast episodes on it. But I think the big things that you really, that really struck me was I was thinking back to when I first started working in the schools and it, you're exactly right. It's like, I would notice every goal was 
And so, you know, that was by the end of the year, that was the success is we get to 80%. um, And then, you know, working like 60%. Now we're doing 70%. And, and I do think that, you know, we've all fallen into that trap of just taking the goal that, you know, from what was written the year before, and just if it wasn't met, you know, changing the percentage or tweaking it somehow, but it's still it's like, okay, why hasn't this been met at this point? You know, it's, we obviously need to change something else about the goal or what we're doing, because if they have four years in a row of trying to get to 80%, you know, what are we doing at this point? So I, I love that you mentioned that, that, you know, to keep that in perspective and think about why are you choosing the percentages that you're choosing and what does that really mean and look like throughout life? And do you need a degree in math to calculate the result from this? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I also, um, you know, just thinking about when you all are speaking is that I know how important, you know, data collection and managing that collection so that you can utilize it and and go back and look at it and say, okay, how did we do? What do we need to change? What do I need to, you know, tweak so that we can be successful? How do you all as, you know, BCBAs and SLPs, how do you handle that data collection and management? Because I know that the BCBAs that I've worked with, it's, it's very specific. And I would love to know how you all collect, how you manage it, and then any resources that you would recommend so that those of us who aren't as versed in it could, could look back and kind of have some, some resources to support us with that. The way we advocate for the most effective data collection is honestly the use of time sampling and, and, and intervals. Um, and then just having families who, or having therapists who say, okay, the goal will, will be measured, you know, the child will be able to make 10 two-word requests in a five-minute interval as their terminal goal. And what we're going to do along the way with that prompting and that support is we're going to take data in those kind of intervals. And so we're going to set a timer and it's going to be five minutes. A lot of our therapists here in in our clinic, um, they do 50 minute sessions and they'll do the first five minutes and the last five minutes and grab data from those. And so they just take that data in that methodology rather than taking it for the whole duration of the session. I think for group-based therapists, it could be incredible because you can dedicate, you've got 20 minutes, you've got four kids in your group, you focus on one kid's data for each five-minute time sample, and if you've written your goal accordingly, it allows you to very functionally record that information. And so when you have, when you gather that data, how do you use that to to drive what you're going to do next? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming, you know, if they're if they're doing well, you'll change it to make it more challenging. If they're struggling to decrease, but you know, what does that look like? How often do you, do you change those goals based on the data? Is it, do you wait a certain amount of time where you say, okay, we've been doing this for this long. It's not changing. So now we know we need to make, you know, some tweaks. What does that timeline look like? So in our clinic, we typically update goals around every three months, Um, but we definitely advocate for watching that data really from session to session and never really waiting if you start seeing a trend. Again, going back to that responsibility, if that child's not making progress and we're kind of feeling stuck, I'm 
more likely to change how I'm teaching it and what my scaffolding and prompting looks like than I am to say, okay, we need to decrease the difficulty of this goal, unless I've already made those modifications. Um, when we're talking to our graduate clinicians who are very heavily using SOAP notes, we talk a lot about when you do your analysis and your plan, your analysis should really be why does the objective data look the way it does? What modifications have I made and what were the effects of those? And then my plan is really going to be, okay, what do I need to change next time to make sure that we are meeting this goal? Because hopefully I've written a goal that is functional and appropriate for the student. So what are the things I need to change? And we do recognize that if you're if you're a school-based speech therapist, it can be very challenging because you may be working on a goal and realize that you need to modify that terminal goal. But we would always say it's a small meeting to do an amendment on an IEP and parents are going to welcome it. If you say, wow, he's making so much progress, he's gonna meet this goal and I need to make it harder. Or if you say, I wrote this goal and I need to help him in a different way. We try to get rid of the, the term like he's not making progress or he's not meeting it. I need to modify the goal so I can help him meet it with some different supports. Something that lets parents know that you are that invested in making sure that their child makes the progress they need to make. I love that idea of never saying to parents, well, they're not making progress because you're exactly right. I always say, if you're not making progress on a goal as a therapist, you need to look yourself in the mirror and say, what can I do better? What can I change? Because the burden is never on the child, right? The burden is on the therapist to exactly. make sure that we are providing skilled services that are going to lead to successful outcomes. And so I love, you know, really changing that terminology when you're thinking of talking to parents. Um because it really lends itself to other strengths-based conversations and figuring out what works best for this child that might, you know, generalize to other areas of things that they're working on in the classroom or at home. Um, and so that's really great. And, you know, speaking of leading kids to success, to round out this conversation, I know you probably have so many different wonderful success stories, but we could all use a little joy and happiness in 2020. And so I'd love to hear if you guys have, you know, a specific success story where you feel like you really made a amazing treatment plan or, you know, alterations to a treatment plan that led a child to success to be able to achieve goals that originally maybe they weren't um, they weren't able to achieve without that support. Well, so um, I do have just a fun story, I guess, that goes with that, that you mentioned in my bio that I, Amy, am an um, educational advocate. And I took coursework to do that. And what that means is that often I'll sit in on IEPs where parents are very concerned about the progress their child's making, the way goals have been written. Um, I really try to avoid the contentious side of things, but I love supporting my families. And I had the opportunity this summer to sit in on an IEP meeting with a team that was extremely receptive, and they had written a goal for the little girl um, that she would go to the bathroom. She was in kindergarten, so in class bathroom, that she would go to the bathroom and that she would pull down her pants and sit on the potty for three minutes, which I thought was a little excessive, but okay. She'd sit on the potty for three minutes, and then she would pull her pants back up, go wash her hands, and go back to class. And I said to the teacher, okay, um, 
can she do those things? And the teacher said, well, yeah, all the time. And I said, so she can pull down her pants, sit on the potty, pull her pants back up, wash her hands with 100% accuracy. And the teacher said, yeah. And you could kind of see the look on her face that, well, maybe that's not the right goal. And so I engaged her in conversation and said, well, what, what's our goal for this little one? Like, what are we doing this for? And she said, well, we don't want her to have wet diapers at school. I said, so our goal is that she'll be dry. And the teacher said, yeah. And I said, well, then let's rewrite the goal. Let's talk about that when provided opportunities at regular intervals to use the restroom, she'll remain dry for the duration of the day for five consecutive days. And the teacher was like, yes, that's what I wanted to do. Rewrote the goal, finished the IEP meeting, and the teacher asked if I would remain on. And I ended up sitting down and meeting with the teacher a week later while we went through her classroom's goals to identify which ones could be modified and written differently so that she was actually working on what she meant to work on. So I think it impacted that little girl for sure, but then also the fact that that teacher was so receptive, and I think it probably impacted her entire caseload to change the point of view she was seeing those skills from. Wow, well, I that think, is an yeah. amazing story. <laughs> Sorry, Jennifer, go ahead. I think that, that what's so you know great about you saying that is that it really does just drive home that, you know, especially you know, in therapy and writing goals, if you keep doing the same thing and not getting the outcome that you would like or is the best for the child, then you've got to change something. Something's got to be, you know, whether, you know, how the goal's written, how you're addressing it. And I think that's such a good example that, you know, you said, well, let's just reframe this. And then, it did meet still the needs of what, you know, the classroom wanted from the student, but it also allowed the student to have success and, and you know, work up from that, from that place and, and to stay dry and not be in a, a wet diaper, you know, which yes. is probably not comfortable. So it really, by just reframing that and looking at it a different way, taking a step back, it was able, you know, it was best for the child, best for the teacher. It was kind of a, you know, a win-win. And I think that's just reminding ourselves if you're hitting that wall, take a step back. What do you, what do you need to change? What do you need to do differently? 100%. Yes. Well, I'm so happy we were able to have you on our show today and also learn so much from you. I was taking notes while you all were talking and just really thinking about what a big impact we can have on our clients, no matter their age, but really making micro impacts on one individual or in the story you gave, really making macro impacts in educating families and other teachers and really trying to follow best practice with our treatment plans to have the best outcomes. And so thank you so much for teaching us all so much today. Absolutely. It was fun. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. You're making me want to go write goals and I can't say, I cannot ever think of another time in my life that I said that. (laughs) I mean, I'm truly, and also making me rethink years of goals that I've written and I, you know, needed to go apologize to the people that had to try to work with them. So thank you so much. This was so valuable. And I think it's so great too, just for the beginning of the school year. So we appreciate your expertise and um, your time so very much. 
And if you'd like to get in touch with us at the podcast, send us an email at slpfulldisclosure at gowithadvanced.com. And each episode's show notes are available at the website, gowithadvanced.com backslash SLP full disclosure. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to get the latest updates. And if you want to give us a little shout out, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Also, special thanks to Jonathan Carey for producing this episode and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. And as always, this episode was powered by Advanced Travel Therapy. See you next time.